0: Kiss. However, like with a lot of scripture that you read growing up and here as a child, there can be moments that we assume that we know what's going on in the story before we take time to see is that really what's there? And that's been my week this week. It's been a wonderful surprise to encounter the story of Zacchaeus in a fresh expression, if you would. Um, And it's been very surprising. a little bit, it actually reminded me, since Monday is Valentine's Day at a previous church that I served, it was tradition that uh, as, as I was the youth director there, every um, month, Sunday or Wednesday before Valentine's, whichever one was closest to that, they would gather. Uh, adults and children, the children would serve uh, the adults uh, for the meal that night, and then they would play a game. They would play the dating game. Now, some of you know what that game is. Uh, others are like, ooh, what is that? <laughs> so, so here's what the game would do. They would We would find four couples at various stages of years in their marriage. You know, uh, Those who have been within the first five years, 10, 15, 20, type of... And typically, the fourth one was somebody that had been married a long time. In this church, there was a couple that had been married for 64 years. Yeah, but that is amazing accomplishment, a wonderful, nicest couple you'd ever meet. And so the way the game is played, audience members, we would collect questions that they would have for the couples, and then you separate them, the husband from the wife, and ask them those questions individually to see if their answers would match up. So here was one particular question that one of the youth wrote. In your 64 years of marriage, has there been any top fight that was so big that you contemplated divorce. So first up was the husband and he thought about it for a minute and he goes, if there was, it's gone and I can't remember anything, nothing. So, Okay, good. Then it was the wife's turn. And the same question, in your 64 years, was there ever a fight that you ever contemplated divorce? And she said, divorce? No, 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 never. Murder, maybe. <laughs> so yeah, at which point everyone was like, oh, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> That's been my experience with Zakis this week uh, because Zakis is overly familiar, right? We learned it at such a young age, that little song. You know, Zakis was a wee little, <laughs> and a wee little man was, <laughs> he climbed up in a, for the Lord, he wanted to, yeah, and as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house, Together. yeah, see, we all know it, it's so ingrained with it, before we even, before it was even read, we we're already going, you know, repeating that, knowing where it was leading up, um, And so what's interesting, this story creates a lot of ironies and details. So so let's break it down a little bit Uh, because right at the beginning, the name Zacchaeus means pure, righteous, Um, which is pure irony in this story because Luke describes him as a sort of villainy, you know, kind of sleaze ball that we all love to hate, right? You know, it's like the silent movies, the guy who's dressed in the black cape and kind of hunched over, ready to tie somebody up to a railroad track. You know, we're, we're right there rooting against the bad guy, right? Luke also says that Zacchaeus was wealthy, and surprise, surprise, uh, a tax collector. Now, how did tax collectors of these days get wealthy? Well, by embezzlement, by extortion, by taking advantage of the elderly, by exploiting the, you know, uh, the people around them, by taking care of their cronies, you know, that suits that villainous image that we've all thought of. Now, not only was he a tax collector, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. You're wondering, okay, how do you get that job? (laughs) Interesting enough, you don't necessarily, to get a chief tax collector, you know, you don't collect taxes well. To be a chief tax collector simply means they have enough money to pay the whole taxes for a region right up front to the Roman government. And then they spend the rest of the time collecting in whatever means that they see. and so, assuming this, we can, you know, assume that most likely Zacchaeus came from a very wealthy family to begin with. Um, R was so good at squeezing, you know, others for this that so he was not very well liked, to so say the least. Not only that, but there's some politics in regarding tax collectors that's at play in the New Testament. And to let you know here are the inner workings that are going on, tax collectors uh, for their primary way of making a living would not go after the common man at that time. Because the common person at that time did not have enough to pay for taxes. No, they were going after landowners and wealthy money holders. So um, uh, they were pretty much nothing in the middle at this time. Now, logically, those who hate the tax collectors and were constantly calling for tax relief would be that wealthy class. Interestingly enough, in the New Testament, it always comes from the Pharisees, yeah, who were among the most educated and thus more among the wealthy. So you have this story in which everyone is grumbling uh, when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. And in several stories leading up this this way, we had already heard the Pharisees grumble again and again and again because Jesus is making friends with sinners and tax collectors, right? So obviously someone who's more sinful than anyone else in their eyes. Um, by this time of this instant, everyone is grumbling, which is a sign that the Pharisees had won over the crowd to grumble with them. So if you can imagine, you know, that... That's the political scene that's going on. And Jesus and the Pharisees are at odds with one another. Because Jesus regularly eats and hangs out with the tax collectors. The Pharisees are opposed. And so you've got this interesting setup. Just before we have the standard interpretation that it's a story of conversion, right? The corrupt and filthy rich Zacchaeus had an encounter with Jesus which is so profound that immediately... He promises to change his ways. From now on, he says, he will give half of his possessions to the poor and will will repay anyone that he's defrauded. Not twice, not three times, but four times. Yeah, that's, that's quite exorbitant, right? And according to the standard interpretation, something happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus. Something that prompted this conversion, not just of Zacchaeus' heart, but also of his bank account. And if we embrace this interpretation, perhaps we see a bit of Zacchaeus in us. For example, perhaps you've had an encounter with Jesus, or maybe a worship experience, or maybe an understanding from the Bible or prayer time that was so profound that it opened more than just your soul, but also your wallet, you know? Um, that it affects our image to serve. And, and that, it, that standard interpretation fits that generosity sermon so well. <laughs> um, for instance, a couple of, couple of stats for the generosity is this. Uh, did you know yeah. that 87% of Americans contribute less than 2% of their income to any sort of charity, nonprofit, or church? Less than 2%, so. Some of you should be patting up your hand on the back, right? So, (laughs) well, let's not (laughs) reach, right? 76% of all Americans did not volunteer one hour of their time. Yeah. Um, Which, um, another testament to that standard interpretation for generosity, uh, as as, uh, uh, Wes lifted up Bob Longstaff. Uh, The reason the, the service is put off a little bit is Bob, in his last bit of generosity, dedicated his body for science to to the medical center. I mean, uh, to be a teacher even after he's gone. I mean, that's, that's powerful generosity. And this is a fine understanding of what happened that day in Jericho, but it's not the only possibility. There's another way to read this story in which Zacchaeus isn't a sinner who converts, but a saint who surprises Um, it all depends on your interpretation of how you translate Luke chapter 19, verse 8. And in particular, the verbs that are in the Greek text, do you translate them in the present tense or in the future tense? Uh, It's a good example of the interplay between translation and interpretation. Even though the verbs are in the present tense, the typical way of reading this story follows scholars like Robert Stein, whose translations are in the NRSV and in the NIV. They render the present tense verbs as future present. In other words, Zacchaeus is this sinner who reprints and vows that henceforth, I will give half of my money to the poor and repay anyone I've defrauded four times. The second option, though, commentators like Fitzmaier, and translations, interesting enough, like the RSV and the King James version. So yeah, one of those rare instances where the King James, actually we do want to go back and (laughs) do some learning, is they render the verbs as a progressive present tense. In this translation, in this reading, Zacchaeus is not a sinner who repents, but a hidden saint about whom people have made false assumptions about his corruption and he defends himself by saying this, Lord, I always give half of my wealth to the poor. And whenever I discover that I've defrauded any or any discrepancy, I make four times restitution. The crowd up to this point has demonized Zacchaeus and Jesus praises him as a son of Abraham. And for instance, the Greek, and I'll let you decide which way you'd like to go. The Greek literally translates as this, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give. To the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If we read it like that, it sounds like Zach is describing what he already does, not what he's going to do in the future. He's telling Jesus, Look, I'm not this greedy people that they're making me out to be. I'm already generous. Um, We might see him as a secret saint uh, instead of a repentant sinner. And as soon as I discovered that interpretation, I went, great, I just lost my generosity sermon. <laughs> what am I going to do now? <laughs> and So I, discovered, I decided to investigate a little bit further. Is there any evidence through the rest of the scripture of this second reading? So here are some things I noticed. Notice that Zacchaeus neither confesses his sin nor repents. All right. Now, admittedly, one can construe, as I guess, pledge of the future behavior as repentance, but it remains starkly indifference with the verbal penitence. For instance, in previous scriptures throughout Luke, anytime Jesus catches someone that they've been sinning, they immediately come forward, or at least hesitantly come forward. For instance, the tax collector at the, the temple in uh, chapter 18 Nor does Jesus command Zacchaeus' penitence or his faith or his change of heart. He merely pronounces a blessing because he, like those grumbling around him, is an Israelite and a son of Abraham. Further, Zacchaeus does not offer his financial disclosure in response to anything that Jesus says or does. He only offers it after the crowd's grumbling. Perhaps it is a response to Jesus' presence, or perhaps it is a bewilderment at the crowd's complaint or a defense of his reputation. In either case, I su- suspect that Zacchaeus is not turning a new leaf, as much as he is lifting up the others to see, here's who I am. Now, I'm partial to the second reading because it fits with the many times that Jesus calls out the good people, or at least the ones who are seen in the good light. For example, in the previous chapter from this, there's the rich young ruler who is everything that a model Israelite is supposed to be. They're young, they're rich, they obey all the rules, and when Jesus confronts him about following, he turns around and leaves. Um, And Jesus is also pointing out to those that are seen as the common bad people in society as secretly good. Luke has already mentioned several unlikely heroes along the way. The faith of a Roman soldier, a good Samaritan, a shrewd manager who is commended for his dishonesty, a Samaritan leper who is the only person to give thanks for his healing, and now a tax collector who is commended and more righteous than the sanctimonious Pharisees. So maybe the story is not about a sinner who shocks us by repenting, What about the crowd that demonizes a person it doesn't like with all sorts of false assumptions? The despicable Zacchaeus is this generous one. The traditional interpretation that Zacchaeus is a sinner who's converted tricks us into committing the very sin that the story commends. It presents Zacchaeus not as a righteous and generous man who is wrongly scorned for his prejudiced neighbors, but as a story of a penitent sinner. Turns out, Zacchaeus does live up to his name, pure, righteous, uh, and Jesus knows that all wrong. If you read it this way, uh, this, uh, this you know, sudden turn uh, is not a conversion story about heartfelt giving that comes with an encounter with Jesus. Instead, it's, uh, it's an even stronger leak with disciples of Jesus being generous. Um, I realize that if Zach is describing what he already does, then he's already engaged in this heartfelt giving. No one seems to know he gives like this. They grumble that Jesus is going to this house of a sinner, so Zacchaeus is not giving to be recognized. He's not doing it for fame. He's not doing it for to be boastful. He's, he says, this is part of who I am and Jesus recognizing that he too is a son of Abraham. His giving is still from the heart, and maybe more so because he's done it without all that fanfare. So suddenly my generosity sermon is saved a little bit. <laughs> what, a, what a relief, right? Um, I talked to one pastor this week who, uh, who had already explored this, um, this version before and said they actually lifted it up in a Bible study that they were doing one time. And somebody during the Bible study said, whew, thank you so much because now I can put myself in that story. And the, and the pastor said, well, tell me more. Says, well, that, that, the person said, I can't think of me jumping up and then just giving away every, you know, half of everything that I own <laughs> You know, I've had some amazing encounters with Jesus, but wow, that's, a, that's something you can't live up to. But what if it's living out that generosity day to day, regardless of what people think, regardless of what people say, and be living that out. It's like the much, uh, Leslie stole a little bit of my thunder there with the children's moment. You know, each little step, each little moment, being generous leads us to being even more generous because it's, it's what we do not because of, well, a promise of reward or fear of punishment, not out of duty or to meet someone else's expectation, but it's because it satisfies a deep need of what we do as disciples of Jesus Christ. Um, I'm using this expression, heartfelt giving, partly because Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The people and things we put our time and our money into, that's, that's what we'll love, care about, and feel passionate for. And so, well, on this day, whichever interpretation you decide to, um, it's one that I hope that you will lay claim to the generosity of a God who is so generous, not because of our assent, but for His. And for that, we can give thanks today, and tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, Let us pray. Father, it is in your constant, unfailing love that you come to us, guide us, renew us, strengthen us. May our hearts overflow with generosity, generosity that speaks to friends, to family, to neighbors, to coworkers, uh, generosity that lives in, day in, day out for the little ways that we may live forth and show, not by boasting or being prideful, but simply for being because of Christ's love for us. This we give thanks to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.